0: Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. Welp, it's me again, Aaron Batty, your host on the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. As always, brought to you by 5-MinuteBibleStudy.com. Today's feature resource is 30 Days of Family Worship. Go to 5minutebiblestudy.com. You can click on the drop-down menu at the top of the page. There should be a 5-Minute Bible Series option. Going on that link, there are several different Bible series available, and one of those is 30 Days of Family Worship. This was a project that I launched last January. extended into, I think it maybe did the whole month of January, every single day. We had a, a, a different father... With a few exceptions, I did a a few of the days of family worship, but a different father who would lead us through a video of how he does family worship with his family at home. I had something like 25 different fathers who participated. It was really great to see the different variations, the little different things they might have done, tweaked a little bit differently. And Then at the end, the father would give his two cents about why this is an important uh, practice, and why it's such a blessing to his family. And so that was a little project that I did last year to promote families participating together, reading the Bible, praying together, and sharing just a few spiritual insights as a family. This is something that all families can do. I want to uh, re-instill this into our listeners. If you have a family, if you are thinking about starting a family, this is something you need to do. I won't go any more into that. If you want to know more about family worship, go watch the series. It's a good time of the year to jump on that. This episode eight I have entitled Finding Yourself in Scripture, and this was really inspired, this whole episode was inspired by my brother in Christ, Wade Branch. Wade, give you a plug there. Yeah, you may or may not listen to this, but this is really inspired by some things that Wade had texted me a while back, he told me he was uh, enjoying some aspect of the website, I can't remember what, but he said, I'd really like to have, uh, hear a segment, here. what your thoughts are on reading the Bible introspectively, I think is the way he put that. Well, we'll explain what that is in the main dish, that's what our episode will focus on, but as we go along here, as always, we're going to have a Bible story. This week's Bible story is going to feature the battle or the defeat at Ai, A-I, A-I, I -I. (laughs) I, I guess that's how you pronounce it. That's how I always pronounce that name, of that city in the Old Testament, from Joshua chapter 7. Then we're going to have a little commercial break, followed by the main dish, Finding Yourself in Scripture. We'll fill out that little uh, pursuit about reading the Bible introspectively. And then I'll give you a little foot-and-mouth syndrome. Again, we are running out of these, so we would like to have some more. I've been choice with my words recently in the pulpit so I'm not helping myself provide new material. But anyways, we will have foot and mouth syndrome. Something I want to tell you I said recently that uh, got me in trouble with the people 80 years old and above. <laughs> Without further delay, let's get into Bible stories. And that donkey got up not too far away from that angel of the Lord. Send me a man to fight with me. Esau, let me tell you a story that will prove to you that I can defeat that giant by the- and he says, no, I can't do that. Hear my master's wife." As I stated, this week's Bible story is taken from Joshua chapter 7, the whole chapter. If you wanted to go back and fact check me, what I like to do, start telling people now. I'm going to start telling you at the beginning of every Bible story. The facts of this story are in the scriptures. So go back and read it to make sure that I'm not adding or taking away. Sometime I will add dramatic effect that, most of the time, is in my tone of voice or whatever, but sometimes I'll describe things in ways that they could have been true. The text doesn't really tell us one way or another, and so we try to bring it to life by adding details. I might do that in the story. Just fact-check me. Joshua chapter 7. Okay, this is right after the battle at Jericho. you will remember the story where the whole army of Israel marched around the city seven times, Uh, seven days, seven times on the final day, and then played all their trumpets, and they shouted, and the walls of the city came falling down, crashing to uh, spare only Rahab, the harlot, and her family. She was known as Rahab the harlot, but she wasn't a harlot after she converted to the Hebrew faith of the one true God. Anyway, then they go on to the next town, and they're on a rampage. God tells them to start their conquest the conquest of the land of canaan and they're going to approach the jordan river which divides the canaan on the west side from the wilderness on the east side well they're still in the wilderness and they come to the to the nation of ai and the nation of ai was much much smaller of way lesser reputation in terms of strength and formidity than the nation of jericho so this should have been just a, a piece of cake piece of cake But they get up here, and it's not a piece of cake. Joshua is the leader of God's army. Moses has passed away at this point. So Joshua is now leading God's people. And Joshua assembles a little group of soldiers. And it says actually here 3,000 men. So 3,000 men. They had thousands of men in their army. But he's like, nah, this is such a small city. And, you know, what we just did to Jericho, we're going to take 3,000 guys, and we'll just be done with this by noon. Maybe we'll have a nice picnic afterwards. Well, instead, AI comes out of the city screaming and yelling. It must have just, like, been some cavemen, crazy dudes. And they come, ah, and they chase these 3,000 men and kick their heinies. And the 36, is it? I believe it's 36 men. Fact check me on that. Um, Yes, exactly. They are running for their lives, and they are chased for quite a way. It says as far as Shebarim, so indicating a good distance. And It says the, des- the people of Ai struck them down on the descent of Shebarim, and the people melted like water. That's what the King James says. They melted like water. So imagine an ice cube in the heat of the day just melting into a puddle. That was the people's emotions. They were so distraught. It says that Joshua tore his clothes And he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening all day long. The elders of Israel are mourning. They're putting dust on their head, a sign of humility before God and saying, God, why have you brought us all this people to this side of the Jordan to deliver us only into the hand of our enemies? Why, Lord, oh, why, oh, why? And God, it's in verse 10, says, get up (laughs) with an exclamation point. Get up. Why do you lie like this on your face? It's like they should have known what the problem was, but they didn't. And he says, Israel sinned. They've trespassed my covenant that I gave you. They've taken some of the spoils from Jericho that I told them not to take. And Joshua's bewildered. He obviously, it sounds like he didn't know this was going on because he just he had no clue why God would bring them this far to conquer Canaan. And before they've even crossed the river, they're getting their hineys kicked by little Ai. So God tells him, he says, you got to do something about this. You're not going to be able to defeat AI or nobody until you get this sin eradicated from the camp. Uh, In fact, we'll read specifically what he says in verse 13. He says, get up, sanctify the people. There is an accursed thing in your midst. So Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. So God tells Joshua, he says, call all Israel to the camp of meeting tomorrow. That meant the tabernacle. And he says, When you do, I'm going to give you some type of a sign. We don't know what this was, but some type of a way that Joshua would understand God was selecting and pointing to a certain tribe as the problem lies in this tribe. So whatever that sign was, God says, I'm going to indicate to you which of these 12 tribes of Israel it is. So they bring them all to the camp the next day, and they all come out, and God indicates to separate the tribe of Judah. And then from the tribe of Judah, he says, to separate to me the family of the Zarhites. And he brought the family of the Zarhites. And and then he said, I want you to bring every single man from this family. And so after he did, uh, then Zabdi, it says, or Zabdi, he was taken. And this patriarch, he had a large family himself. Of his family, all the men came forward. And Achan, the son of Carmi, he was the man that was finally singled out out of all this triaging. Uh, Achan was the man that it came down to. And obviously, he was the one who had kept some of these spoils of war. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned. He doesn't even try to argue his case. He doesn't try to lie. He knows that if God could find him amidst this huge people, that he couldn't lie to God. There's nothing getting around this. And he said, When I saw the spoils, a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I, I covered them and I took them. And there they are, hidden in the ground underneath my tent. They buried him. And the indication is, from what happens after this, that it wasn't just Achan that had done this. I mean, his family was in on it. It's indicated because after this, Joshua sends messengers. They dig up the spoils of war. Sure enough, they're right where Achan said they would be. And then he calls forth Achan and his whole family. And it says, uh, well, God had originally said, whoever it is that this sin is among them take them and burn them uh, execute them and so Joshua says why have you done this why have you troubled all of us 36 innocent soldiers of Israel have died because of what you did and he doesn't say that explicitly but that's implied and so all Israel stoned them with stones a gruesome death and then they piled up their bodies and burned them for a witness to all the people that you do not do this. When God tells us to do something and he's been so gracious and so merciful to us to bring us out of Egypt and bring us all this way through the wilderness, then we the least we can do is not take spoils of Jericho when he says don't take spoils of Jericho. That's the whole message, you know? And so that's the that's a great story, a great example to show us that one person or even one family in this case can affect an entire community. This has been on my mind recently. I hope that it helps you and you can take this, understand it a little bit better now, and maybe you can make some applications from that. If you have young children and go to church, you've experienced your child screaming at the random, most inappropriate times during the church service. The, the preacher might say, I hope you're all having a great day and you're happy to be here. And, and your kid chooses that moment to exercise from himself seven demons that have possessed him for two years. There is a cure. You can look forward to Scream Free Church. Try Naptime. time. For a full-featured infomercial, go to YouTube and search Naptime commercial. You'll be glad you did. Naptime time is a sleep time formula that comes in a spray bottle. Two simple sprays directly in the face of your child, and in five seconds, they'll be fast asleep. What exactly is in the formula, scientists are still researching, but it works, and that's really all that matters. Don't ask questions. Just buy it and enjoy Scream Free Church for the first time as a parent. Nap time. Please take note, this is a fake product. It is not actually for sale. Do not spray your children's faces with any drug-induced formula that will make them go unconscious. Train them in the admonition of the Lord instead. Alrighty, it's time for the main dish. The main dish is where we talk about a major subject of discussion, and we're going to take this opportunity to talk about reading the Bible introspectively, or as I put it a little more simply, finding yourself in the Bible. Um, This happens a lot. People, they read the Bible trying to see what does this passage mean to me. And this is the source of a lot of motivational quotes that are volleyed around and people throw them around rather freely, um, using them a lot of times out of context. And this can cause problems. But more so than that, we're not really focusing today on using scriptures out of context. That is a natural consequence of... Not reading the Bible introspectively correctly, but really in this, we're we're talking about when you read the Bible instead of looking for, oh, my friend needs to read this because it totally uh, describes him and not in a good way. (laughs) For example, the story of Jonah, which I'm going to play with a lot in this piece here, the main dish is, is Jonah, and when you read Jonah, he's he's got big time problems. You've got major problems and a lot of times you might see somebody else you might see your enemies in Jonah and that's all you see you don't see yourself in a mirror here and a lot of times well we'll get into this more toward the end but you should be seeing yourself in Jonah with that I do give some precautions um, I'll explain how you can go wrong looking for yourself in scripture Uh, If that's the first thing that you're doing when you come across any passages, you can run into some big caution signs. So I'll give you some things to think about how to do this appropriately, how to find yourself in Scripture appropriately without stripping the Scripture of its context, without corrupting the Word of God, without making it say something that it doesn't actually say to begin with or never even intended. Okay, So that's the intent of this whole segment. And with that said, I want to give you some important questions to ask And these questions, there's three of them, these questions are true for Bible study in general and interpreting the Bible. These are good just to ask at all times, no matter if you're trying to read the Bible introspectively or not, but nonetheless, it does apply to the subject at hand. So three questions you need to ask yourself at all times. You come across a passage, let's say, in Genesis, Daniel, or Jonah. Those are the three books that we're going to focus on for the sake of example here for the next few minutes. So you come across a passage in one of these and you think, wow, that really speaks to me. And uh, you just run with it and start making all sorts of application or applying it to right now, you know, in the right now uh, of life and trying to choose the will of God based off of this motivating scripture or something like that. I don't know. Here's what you need to do. Number one, you need to ask the question, who is this written to? Like Not just this passage even, but the passage is within a chapter, which is within a book. Who is this book written to? Using Genesis, for example, Genesis is written to Jews in the wilderness. And a lot of times you'll see this evidence by the fact that Moses pauses from telling a story, and he'll insert a detail that would only make sense to Jews of the time that were reading that, and based on the context, in the wilderness. So he'll say, like, you know, there was a statute made, um maybe on a side of the river after the great event took place, and you will say, and it's there to this day. Well, this is written to people of Moses' day. Uh, it's written to explain to them. Well, I won't say why it's written. We'll get to that in just a moment. We're focusing on who is this written to. So Genesis is written to Jews in the wilderness. The book of Daniel, quite a bit ways after Genesis. This is written to fellow Jews. So Daniel being the writer, he's writing to fellow Jews in Babylonian captivity. Jonah I propose to you is written to Israelites, as are all the books of the minor prophets. Well, all the prophets for that matter. They're all written to the nation of Israel. That's the first question to ask. The next question is, why was this book written? Or why was this passage written? Again, it's within a book. Genesis, it was written to explain the covenant history of God's covenant people prior to their entrance into the covenant land of Canaan. All that going back to God's covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, which is developed more and more as you keep reading through Genesis. Um, It it basically is a promise by God to Abraham, and God chose him based off of his faith that I'm going to make you a great nation in size, like you're going to have lots of descendants. I'm going to give you land, and he gives him the parameters for that after Genesis 12, and it ends up being the land of Canaan, and he says, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. And that's the messianic promise in there. Well, it was written. To, it's a it's a book written to explain the covenant history of God's covenant people prior to their entrance into the covenant land of Canaan. Okay, and so by the end of Deuteronomy, which is the end of Moses' writing, he is giving to them uh, a little bit of history, going back over it, giving them the law once again, reminding them of the covenant they're supposed to be faithful to before they enter into this land. That's why the book was written. It's why the five books of the Pentateuch. The five books of Moses, the first five of the Bible, were written. Looking at Daniel, going back to that book again, this book, why was it written? To encourage and give hope to the Jews who may be having trouble as they're in captivity in Babylon, or maybe they're the ones that were left behind in Israel. Maybe they got a hold of this letter by chance. And it's it's written to encourage them and give them hope if perhaps they're having trouble maintaining their hope in the sovereignty of God and the promises of messianic redemption that was supposed to come, but they're in the state that they are, and it seems like all hope is gone. If you can place yourself in the shoes of somebody like Daniel, um, read chapter 1 of Daniel and see what all he was stripped of, and for him to have the amount of faith that he does, a lot of that was speaks to his character, and then it's invigorated by the visions that he receives that are recorded in the book, and these are relayed to the people to give them hope as well. The book of Jonah, last one, and we'll move on to the next question. The book of Jonah was written to remind Israel as a nation of their purpose in God's scheme of redemption. Now, at first, you may be thinking like, Aaron, where are you getting that from? I'll get to that toward the end. We're just going to walk through a few things in Jonah chapter 4, but it's really written to that purpose to tell Israel as a nation their purpose in God's scheme of redemption. And God's essentially telling Jonah, and as he's telling Jonah, he's talking to Israel, Jonah being a representation of Israel, a, a factual person in history, but again, as an Israelite, he represents the people for the message God wants to convey as they read this book. He's essentially telling Jonah and Israel that they were chosen in order to save the nations, not to the exclusion of the salvation of the nations. And in the book of Jonah, Jonah does not—he forgets that. If Maybe he forgets is not the right word. Maybe he never learned that to begin with. But he certainly doesn't seem to understand it or at least agree with it uh, in chapter 4 of his book and really throughout the whole book. So that's why these different books are written. There are a lot of different study helps that are out there to help you walk through each book of the Bible. Who was it written to? Why was it written? And the next one, what is the meaning of this text? This is a lot of times where after you've done a lot of your own Bible study, then you bring out a commentary to help with the passages you don't understand. Well, what is the meaning of this text that I'm reading? You see this motivational quote or whatever, but you want to make sure that you're applying it correctly. Or maybe you want to know, what does this mean to me? And you want to make sure that you have that right. So you ask the question, what is the meaning of this particular text? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, for example, going back to Genesis, a lot of times people go to Genesis and they will argue against atheism from genesis chapter one now there's some merit to that because a lot of arguments are levied against the first three chapters of genesis from skeptics and atheists so because they go there in the first place it's appropriate to then go there as well and respond to arguments that are brought forth from genesis one through three but really genesis one is it was not written to combat atheism There were no atheists back in that time. I mean, there may have been a few sparse atheists, but primarily people's problem was not atheism, but polytheism, where they believed in many gods. And Israel was unique in that they believed in only one God. So it wasn't written to combat atheism. We should understand that it is written to give a historical account of the divine origins of man, which Israel is. It's a whole nation of men and women created by God, and so Moses gives this historical account and explains the purpose of their existence, which was to live in communion and fellowship with God and carry his glory into all the earth. And you get that from God's commission to man after he creates him in Genesis 1, right around verse 26 there. You get that. That's why that was written. It wasn't written to combat atheism, but if we'll understand that, some of the things that will continue to be revealed in the book of Genesis will make more sense and will understand why they're there and what they're saying to Israel and then be able to make application. That should be the sequence of our studying. In Jonah chapter 4, another passage, for example, that chapter is where you might remember, it's the last chapter in the book, and Jonah goes and builds a little hut, a little shelter up on a, a little ridge, I guess you'll call it, a ledge, and he's looking down on the city of Nineveh, which he just preached to, and they repented, they fasted, they prayed to God, and God showed them mercy. He's not going to destroy them. So Jonah builds this, and then God builds this. He makes this plant grow over Jonah to give him shade from the sun and the excruciating wind. But then God destroys the plant, and through all of this, he uses the plant as a parable to teach Jonah a lesson. And the meaning of that text, the whole fourth chapter altogether, which is centered on this parable of this plant, it's written to teach God's people about God's abundantly gracious and merciful, loving nature. Jonah says that very thing about God, quoting Exodus 34. Uh, he says that in chapter 4 and verse 2, that God has all these things. I knew you were this way, God. I knew that you were going to show mercy. I knew that you were going to show grace to Nineveh. Ah. Oh! <laughs> And this chapter, this book is showing the fact that God is all these things and that all of his creation is the object of that love and the object of that mercy and grace, not just his Israelite creation, which throughout the Bible, and especially in going into the Gospels, we find that Israel, as by and large, has a really selfish outlook on why God created man And what their purpose is in life as Israelites. God did not create them to just save them and they be unique in their salvation and their specialness to God. They were created special to carry God as a message to the nations and save the nations. That's why the chapter 4 of Jonah was written. And at first, you might need some more uh, evidence for that than just me telling you. We'll come back to Jonah in just a little bit and give some more evidence for that and how to read the 4th chapter. But otherwise, if you want a full-length explanation of all this, I do have a YouTube sermon up online, Chapel Grove Church of Christ YouTube page, Jonah and the Plant. You can go look that up, and there's a full length of that sermon. But without dwelling on that anymore, all of these answers, the who question, the why question, the what question, all the answers to those questions that we just talked about, um, they don't immediately come to us. The things that I just told you about why Genesis was written, about why Daniel and Jonah were written, who they were written to, and what different chapters within those books are teaching, those didn't just immediately come to me, not even just from reading the text one time. Those come by reading and rereading the text. And if you have been following this podcast, you probably hear me say at least once a podcast episode, you need to be reading your Bible that's because you're never going to get to even the these surface understandings of the things that we just talked about without just simple, gritty Bible reading. But they also come by setting, a time, uh, setting time aside to carefully read the texts on their own. Not just in your regular Bible reading, but time aside just to read that text, like Jonah chapter 4 or Genesis chapter 1. They come by using the steps in the How to Study the Bible, 5-Minute Bible Study series that's on YouTube. There's another plug for that. You take those steps that I'm giving to you guys and you implement those in this time that you've set aside. And through this study you then come to these proper conclusions, as I believe they are, and that will help you then in taking the text and applying it to yourselves. That is one of the steps of Bible study, is applying the text to yourself, but you can't apply the text without first having a context for the text. And so, all of this really comes down to a few basic principles of Bible interpretation. Now, those are some important questions you need to ask. Those are some important things you need to take into account. But let's address real quick three—I don't really know what to call these. Maybe, uh, maybe you would call them fallacies, but definitely three improper ways of uh, taking a text, reading it, and I guess reading it inappropriately or applying it inappropriately. Here's three inappropriate ways of reading and applying Scripture. And there are more. These are three important ones that I just wanted to peruse real quick. Whenever you're reading, uh, we use the example of, say, a motivational passage. I can do all things to God who strengthens me. You know That one's been repeated so many times. And you read that passage. Very motivating, right? But a lot of times... It's taken out of its context, because there's obviously things that you can't do. Like, you're not going to be able to raise a house off the ground with your bare hands. You're not Superman. uh, You're not Jesus Christ. You can't do anything. So there obviously is some limitation to that, but we take it and apply it without limitation. So oftentimes we'll do this, and we'll say, you know, this passage just speaks to me so much. And that right there, you might actually apply the passage. You might do that to a passage like the one just quoted, and it, you might not say anything that's not true, right? And and the thing that you're applying that to that you want to do may very well be that, yes, you can do that by the the strength that God has supplied you in that day. That may be true, but the way that you came to that conclusion um, is really a formula for failure. And if you use that same formula, you're eventually, you, first of all, you're just downright misusing the Word of God, and you by chance, came to a right conclusion in that instance, right? But eventually, this is going to lead you to making the Bible say things in other passages that it never said or saying things that are the exact opposite of what it said. I've even been thinking about that recently. Different passages, there's two specifically where the Bible says one thing and and people commonly take it to say the very opposite of what the Bible is saying in that passage. One being 1 Timothy three one. Um, The other one slips my mind in the moment, but that happens a lot because we're using the wrong formula all the time. And sometimes it doesn't harm us, but then eventually it is inevitably going to cause us to misrepresent Scripture. Well, that's one thing that we do wrong. Another one is understand that the Bible wasn't written to Aaron Batty. And by that, I'm talking to myself now. The Bible wasn't written to you, Aaron. But it was written to people with the same nature as you, and that's what's important to understand. The book of Daniel was not written to Aaron, but it was written to people that have the same nature as Aaron. Just recently, uh, John Daniel preached about the complaining of Israel in the wilderness on a Sunday afternoon, and he talked about how you know sometimes we look at Israel and we we stare at them and say, you know, man, what a, what an ungrateful people. And I wouldn't have done that if I was there. But really, when you step back and you read the Bible introspectively and you place yourself in their shoes and you answer all the questions, you realize that I really share in the same nature as these people. And I've done some of the very same things in parallel that I'm not so sure that I wouldn't have done what they did. Probably would have, in fact. Well... The Bible wasn't, you know, Exodus numbers wasn't written to you. It wasn't written to me specifically. But if there are traits of human nature in that narrative, in that story, then you can learn from that. And this means I can't always read the text as if it was spoken directly to me. But if I understand what it meant to the original hearers, there will invariably be some quality application for me to make. And so that's, some imp- that's an important thing to take away from that. Um, that's number two. And number three, thing to consider here inappropriate ways we read and apply the Bible. Understand that books of the Bible are not written to one party about another party. As if, imagine a front porch in a small town where old men get together on the rockers, they drink coffee, and they talk about everybody but themselves in the town. You know, there's that classic picture in your mind maybe old women doing the same thing, sewing together, and and they're talking about everybody else but themselves. The Bible wasn't written about everybody else except the people that the book was written to. (laughs) Classic examples being 1 Corinthians. I mean, 1 Corinthians is a book written to that congregation, people in that church. Paul was being pretty blunt, and he was just giving the, the Word of God full sin there. He was writing to the Corinthians, and when they read that, They were to be listening to what Paul said to them, not to somebody else. This wasn't a a gossip hour. Galatians was written to the people at Galatia. Numbers was written to the Israelites. Um, Judges was written to Israel about a dark time in their nation, and these things were written to them about them. Jonah, same thing. Philemon was written to Philemon uh, and how he should treat his runaway slave Onesimus, who had become a brother in Christ. And there's, you know, we could go through all the books of the Bible. All in all, the books of the Bible were written to individuals so that they could understand God's word and me- apply it to self. They would understand it for their own benefit, for their own spiritual growth, for their own knowledge and learning, if that makes sense. If we don't have that same approach, And if they didn't have that approach, then we read the Bible selfishly. And that brings us to our next point. How do you read the Bible selfishly? This is an interesting thing to to think about. Take Jonah, for example. I'm going to keep going back to that. You read Jonah selfishly when you identify all the problems with Jonah, which you should. I mean, he has plenty of problems, and that's part of it to contrast Jonah's character with Jonah. God. That is one of the things, and just let me run through some of the problems that you'll run in with Jonah. In the chapter 4 alone, now this is just chapter 4, you can identify Jonah as being all the things that I'm about to list here. You'll notice that he is very stubborn, selfish, defiant, proud, hateful, lacking faith in God, unthankful, hypocritical, lacking self-awareness, short-sighted, and childish. And that's really not an exhaustive list. But that's a good list of identifying the problems with Jonah and noticing all these sinful attitudes and behaviors that he demonstrates. But you read the Bible selfishly when you identify all those things and you apply it to everybody but yourself. You see everybody else as Jonah except you. You find your enemies in Jonah. And you read the Bible selfishly when you don't allow yourself to get close enough to the text, removing any chance that it might step on your toes. Does that make sense? We do this because we want to feel good about ourselves. And when the Bible pricks us, that doesn't feel good. But, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10, in his whole talk about the thorn in the flesh, when we are made weak, then we are strong. And if we will get close to the Bible, close enough that to give it ample opportunity to step on our toes and to let us see ourselves in Jonah, then we will be made strong for seeing our weaknesses. I'll give you a few passages which speak to the fact that personal growth comes through pain and sometimes discomfort. Here's three different passages I think I have for you. Yeah, three different passages. Here we go. Psalm 141 verse 5 says this: Let the righteous strike me; it shall be a kindness, and let him rebuke me; it shall be his excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 11 says: The words of the wise are like goads. Goads were like cattle prides to prick, and they cause initial pain, but they are to get the cattle going in the appropriate direction, right, where they need to go. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Proverbs 27, verse 5 says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A satisfied soul. This is an interesting one right here. It goes right, verse 7. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every, every bitter thing is sweet. That in the same context is what he just said about the wounds of a friend being precious. Satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. People that are full to the brim don't want any more. Even something as sweet as honey right from the honeycomb. But a hungry soul, in this case, people that want to grow every bitter thing even we're not talking honey we're talking like bitter herbs even those are sweet i'll take anything and he's basically saying if you will be as hungry as a poor hungry soul out there searching for food uh, and you'll be that hungry for wise counsel and spiritual growth then you will grow then it doesn't matter how much it hurts it will be sweet to you when you read the bible going back and summarizing a little bit to this point Ask the question, who was this written to? Why was it written? What is the meaning of the text? And also, with that said, especially the third question right there, understand that the text comes pre-applied. I got that from a book. I can't remember the guy's name who wrote the book, Application. It's a book on how to make application in your sermon. But I just love that point and that concept. The text comes pre-applied. Like You don't have to come up with all the things that you want The Bible to say, and then go and look for a passage to to prove that you were right and to supply a text for what you wanted to say to begin with. The the text comes pre-applied. And so if I'll just do these things, ask those three questions, answer them, then I'll know exactly how the passage can and should be applied to my situation on January the 25th, 2022. And when I do apply it, I'll apply it to myself first and foremost before I apply it to anybody else. If we'll do that, that will help us to read the Bible introspectively, accurately, in context, and introspectively. And in that way, I'm certain to remove any planks from my plain path of sight before I reach out to remove any specks from the peripheral vision of my brothers and sisters. I think this is so important. That's in harmony with the message that Jesus was trying to teach there in Matthew 7 about getting yourself right so that you can help others. With all that said... That should give you the basic principles that you need to read the Bible introspectively and to grow personally and uh, not be a hypocrite when you read it. Okay, it is now 39 minutes into this podcast episode, so I was going to go into talking about Jonah and the plant and go back and give some more kind of a walk, step-by-step walk through how to take the story of Jonah and find yourself in the story without reading it inappropriately and without taking out of context and all that right but we really don't have time for that so I'm just going to wrap this up now again if you want to know more about how to read Jonah introspectively just go and watch my sermon on Jonah and the plant on YouTube and there there you go um, if you'd like the study notes for this episode let me know and I can send those to you anything I can do to help you out in your Bible study I'll help what I can <laughs> Okay, before we're done, we'll do one last foot and mouth syndrome. A while back I was preaching, and I don't even remember what I was preaching about, and I made a com- an age comment, and I have learned—well, I should have learned by now. Let me say this. I should have learned not to make any age comments, for better or for worse, because people will always take it the wrong way. Well, there are some—I'll put it this way. There are some ladies that are over the age of 20. They are well over the age of 20. (laughs) And they sit on the back row every church service at Chapel Grove. And anyways, whatever I was talking about, I think I was talking about eternity the first time I talked about this. And then recently I was, I know for sure I was talking about eternity and these ladies weren't there. And so I said it freely. (laughs) I didn't have to explain myself. Well, the first time I said, I don't want to live to be 80 years old. And Like, really, if you're listening to this, I don't want to live to be 80 years old. There are too many situations where people are like 80 years old. They're alone. Nobody comes and sees them. I feel bad for those people. That's why I like to visit elderly people to try to bring some joy to their life because those people are so lonely. But I don't want to be decrepit and and diseased and all that. Now, there are a lot of 80-year-old people that defy the odds. And I wouldn't mind being one of those people. I just know that my luck, I'm not going to be one of those people, right? I don't want to live to be 90, a hundred years old. I would rather die before I go, you know, that far downhill. I'm okay with that. I mean, honestly, right now, if I were to die, it's okay. Like I'm looking forward to being in heaven, you know, and I I have hope that that's where I will be uh, by the grace of God. So anyways, I said all that, But all that, you know, anybody over the age of 80 heard was, I don't want to be like you. (laughs) Well, anyways, you know how that goes. They didn't smile. And I quickly had to put in some words to try to soften the blow. Like, I don't know. I didn't talk to him afterwards. I don't know if they actually gave me the benefit of the doubt on that. Um, But now you know what I think about living really old. Well, that'll do it for this episode eight. I hope that you can say that this podcast is beneficial and that you're learning something from each of these episodes. If you will, give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any other platforms that you're listening to. Most people are listening on the Facebook podcast option that's kind of a newer feature. You can listen on the 5-Minute Bible Study Facebook page. It'll pop up after I upload the episode. But anyways, wherever you can, give me a review. It'll help get the podcast out there. And I think next episode, we're going to talk about tips, reading tips for the letter of First John. As I've been reading through that every day this month, and from that, I've assembled a little list of reading tips that I think will help you better understand the book on your own, especially if you're a first-time reader. So that's probably our next episode. I'll see you next time on the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast.